Good morning. Thank you for uh, coming to worship together with us. And I would ask if you are able, would you please stand as we will be reading the portion of scripture for today. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 31 to the end of the chapter. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall say anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of God. Would you please be seated? <clears throat> I'd like to begin today by uh, asking if you were stranded on a desert island and you were allowed only one chapter of the Bible. Now, there are 1,189 chapters. If you had to pick one chapter, what chapter would that be of all? You can only have one. can't have any more than that. What chapter would you pick? Now, some people would pick Psalm 119, which is the longest one. Let's get the most scripture in there that we possibly can. Other people would pick uh, John 15. Um, but uh, the question was asked at a pastor's conference several years ago, and the majority of the pastors answered, Romans chapter 8. So today I want to talk about Romans chapter 8, which is what I call the Mount Everest of the Bible. That's Mount Everest right there, okay? And it's the tallest mountain in the world. It's 29,032 feet, about five and a half miles high, and was first scaled by Sir Edmund Hillary back in the 29th of May, 1953. Some of you probably weren't around at that point. But that was just four days before the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. And uh, so that's something that uh, I was actually able to, uh, to see when I was uh, watching TV. In contrast, however, the deepest place in the world is in a place called the Mariana Trench. That is off, just east of the Isle of Guam, 
and it's about 6.8 miles deep, or about 36,000 feet. So if you can picture, if you could take Mount Everest and put it in the Mariana Trench, it would still be several hundred, several thousand feet below the surface of the water. So um, in, the, in the next slide, which is um, the map that show, uh, the slide that shows the map, um, there are two places that I highlighted on there. There are two yellow arrows. Uh, and Paul writes to the church in Rome about AD 56, 57, from the city of Corinth in Greece. So that's that right arrow. And uh, he writes to the church at Rome. And this map shows the relationship between the two. And if you were to go between um, Corinth and Rome, it's about 750 miles by land. So if you're riding the Pony Express, it would take about 50 days for a letter, which Paul writes, to get to the church at Rome. He's never been there either. So uh, this is uh, something I just want you to be aware that Paul is writing to these believers at Rome for three basic reasons. Number one, to confirm, to clarify the gospel and tell them that he's coming. I'm, I'm, he's announcing that I'm going to be visiting you. That's a good thing to do, right? You don't just show up at somebody's house and say, here I am. And so the next thing he does, he gives his travel plans. He does that in chapter 15. And he also, in chapter 15, solicits funds for his trip to, Rome, to uh, Spain. So we come now to the reason why Paul is writing. And this is the theme of Romans, which is the righteousness of God that is imputed to the believing sinner. Righteousness is defined as God's eternal perfection of holiness and the fact that he is always in conformity to his own attributes. So this means that God always does the right thing. And think about it, God never makes a mistake. And so this is something that we can realize that when Paul is writing this, this is probably his greatest work. This is called Paul's magnum opus. It is also considered by some to be the most profound writing of all time. So this is definitely a book that you want to study. You want to get to know what it's about. So the next slide is going to show the structure of the book of Romans, and we're going to be looking at the doctrinal section. So the first eight chapters are doctrinal. It shows how the gospel saves the sinner. The next three chapters, 9 through 11, are national. It shows how God relates to the nation of Israel. And then the third is the practical section. That's chapters 12 through 16, how the gospel relates to conduct. And so let's look a little bit further at this. So we're coming down from the maybe 30,000 feet, come down a little bit more, and on the next slide, we're going to be looking at the outline that um, so many people put together. This is not something that I created. This is just a very common outline that's followed. So the first part is condemnation. Now think about Mount Everest and the Mariana Trench. You don't start on Mount Everest. You start in the Mariana Trench, the lowest part of the earth. 
And what Paul is going to be doing, he's going to bring all of mankind under condemnation. And he does this after he introduces the gospel in chapter 1. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he lays down that foundation of what the gospel is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he begins to bring all of mankind under condemnation. He starts with a man who is a pagan, who has no knowledge of the Bible, and he commits these overt sins. That's chapter 1. And at the end of chapter 1, he gives the longest list of sins that's found anywhere in Scripture. So it's easy to bring these people under condemnation. But in chapter 2, the moralist looks back and he says, boy, I'm glad I'm not like those people. But yet he commits the same sins, but in a very secretive way. Paul then brings the Jewish person, beginning with chapter 2, verse 17, under condemnation because they don't keep the law. And he does that all the way up to chapter 3, verse 8. From 3, verse 9 to the, uh, chapter 3, verse 20, he brings uh, the entire world under condemnation. He uses the Old Testament scriptures to do that. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. They all gone out of the way. Together they have become unprofitable. There's none that seeks after God. No, not one. And he goes and continues that until he comes to the conclusion. And if you have your Bibles, I would just encourage you to look at chapter 3. And look at verse 21. And he says this, but now. Oh, I like that. But, but now, oh, uh, otherwise we would be helpless, hopeless, we would law, be lost forever if we were in that situation because we cannot save ourselves. That's, that's the, the, the bad news. We cannot save ourselves. But the good news is God has already done that for us through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at... Um, Chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever things the law says, it says to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. That's what he's leading toward. I have nothing to say. And God says, you can't use your righteousness. All the good things that you do, for all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And so the only way that we can come before God is to say, I come on the merit of someone else. I come on the merit of someone who is God himself, Jesus Christ, who loved me so much that he went to the cross. He offered his life, took my sin upon him, and gave his life so that I would be able to spend eternity with him forever. So... At the end of uh, chapter 3, verse 20, we are left in a position where we are helpless. But now, in verse 21, this but now is a word that introduces justification. And justification is the sovereign act of God whereby he declares righteous the believing sinner while he is still in the sinning state. And with this righteousness, it means basically two things. Number one... God has forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future. And number two, he then takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and imputes that to us 
so that when God looks at us, he looks at us through the filter of Jesus Christ. He sees us as holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. So there are basically three types of imputations that are mentioned in Scripture. Number one is Adam imputing his sin, his sin nature to us. And we find that in Romans 5, 12. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The second is the believing sinner then imputes his sin to Christ when he is on the cross, for he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then the third is Jesus Christ imputing his righteousness to the believing sinner. And as we look at chapter 4, Paul gives three illustrations. It takes from the life of Abraham, then from the life of David, then back to the life of Abraham. And in chapter 4, it's like a, if you look through the window, what does a window do? It lets in light. And so Paul gives these illustrations to help us understand what this justification is all about. Chapter 5, he talks about the benefits of justification. Um, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into this system of grace in which we stand. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And so this is what God is doing. And then at the end of chapter 5, he talks about, he recaps the condemnation and justification. Now, when we move to this section that's highlighted in yellow, the sanctification, chapter 6 through 8, <clears throat> this tells us how we are to experientially live our lives. That happens after justification. So with this, Paul is telling us that we are able to have this uh, nature, uh, this sin nature that is going to be dealt with that has dominated our lives, and he's going to deal with that. He's also going to be showing us in chapter 7 how Paul realized that the law was something that he couldn't keep. He couldn't pull himself up by the bootstraps. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so as we come to chapter 8, we now have sanctification and the Spirit. And this Holy Spirit has only been mentioned one time in the book of Romans up to this point. That's chapter 5, verse 5. It says, hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. But now in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times, which shows how we can have victory as we were singing about today, this, the Spirit gives us that victory because he lives inside us and he allows us to be able to make proper and good choices. And so we have now, uh, coming up to the next slide, and which is a breakdown of chapter 8, which is what we're going to be looking at. We're finally getting there. Um, first of all, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit assures us of deliverance, deliverance from the law of sin and death, deliverance from spiritual death, and deliverance from physical death. The, in the second part, 
verses 12 through 17, the Spirit assures us of adoption, which we have been talking about this morning already in, in prayer. And that means that we are placed as adult sons and receive everything that would be the inheritance of our Lord Jesus Christ. We then inherit that for ourselves too. And then in verses 18 through 30, the Holy Spirit assures us of future glory, but in the context of suffering. And I would encourage you to take your Bibles over to chapter 8, if you would, and um, look back at verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, and we are joint heirs with Christ. It so be that we suffer with him that we may also glorified together. And he says in verse 18, I reckon that the sufferings, so he's now going to be talking about the sufferings, the difficult times that we go through as believers. I think everyone in this room probably has experienced some kind of difficult trial or circumstances in their lives. So I'd like to walk through from verse 18 all the way down to 30 to place the setting for our scripture today. So as I go through suffering, which is temporary, it's called a light affliction, it's but for a moment, it says that the creation groans. It groans in futility. It's waiting for this deliverance from being in the minor mode. It happened in the minor mode when Adam sinned and the creation went into that minor mode, and it's waiting to be delivered, and it will be delivered when you and I receive our brand new glorified bodies. And so as the creation is groaning, waiting to be released, so I groan because I'm part of creation and I'm waiting to receive that glorified body. But since I'm going through suffering, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray for. And so in verse 26, it has, says the Holy Spirit then begins to groan. So Creation groans, I groan, the Holy Spirit is groaning. And it doesn't mean that I stop praying when I'm going through these difficult times, but I continue to pray, and I'm, I don't even know what to say as I'm doing this. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside, he's that paraclete that come along, comes along to encourage and lift up, and he begins to pray in the will of God and takes your request that all you can do is, oh, you can just groan. And he presents that in the will of God before our heavenly father. And as he does this, present, presenting my request to the father in his will, verse 27, the father is using all things that are at his disposal, which is everything in the entire universe, verse 28, to conform me to the image of his son, verse 29, and he uses all of these different steps that he lists here. I'm predestined, I'm called, I'm justified, I'm glorified, all of them in the past tense. God sees me as already perfect. So now, look at verse 31. <clears throat> and if you have your outline, you can follow along because um, I have four questions there that I listed. Who shall oppose us? Who shall accuse us? Who shall condemn us? And who shall separate us? So let's look at these. These accusations, Paul is asking four questions, and then he answers them to give us the assurance that 
what he has done for us in keeping us saved once we have embraced Jesus Christ. So to answer these, you could answer no one because. So the first question is this, who shall oppose us? Well, no one, because the Father will not oppose us. So Paul starts with God. It all begins with God, and I heard that in, in the prayer today. God made a decision, and it includes me. This is a powerful passage on the eternal security of the believer. Before the cross, back in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we were helpless and hopeless, we were lost, we were depraved, and we could do absolutely nothing about it. But now God is on my side. Before he was my enemy, it says that in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that we were enemies of God. But now that God is no longer my enemy, he is now on friendly terms with us because we're believers, and now God is on my side. So Paul asks, who can be against us? Who can possibly injure us? Who can possibly hurt us? Who can possibly separate us from that love that God has given to us through his son? In Psalm 118, verse 6, it says this, the Lord is on my side. So scripture answers this question. Who shall oppose us? Well, the Bible says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So salvation is fully secured even if the whole world is against me. God is on my side. God is on your side if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have appropriated his forgiveness for you personally. I would invite you to turn to the passage in Isaiah chapter 50, please. Isaiah chapter 50. And this is what it says. And I'm going to just illuminate what the pronouns are. So this is the, the context is the servant is Jesus. And he's speaking about the sovereign Lord who is the father. And um, Isaiah actually is called the Mount Everest of prophecy. Uh, I found that out today. So he, the father, is near who vindicates or justifies me, the Messiah, who will contend with me, the Messiah? Let us, the Father and the Messiah, stand together. Who is my, the Messiah's, adversary? Let him come near me, the Messiah. Surely the Lord God, the Father, will help me, the Messiah. Who is he who will declare me, the Messiah, guilty or condemn me? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, the moth will eat them up. So the Messiah is aware of those who falsely accused him, and they eventually will face him as judge because God, in John chapter 5, verse 23, has declared all judgment is given to the Son. So these people are going to be opposed, uh, facing the judge, and this will come to absolute nothing. So two can do anything if one of them is God. And that's why it's so important for us to know that we have been born again into that family of God. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all, how shall I not with him also graciously give us all things? So the cost of redemption was God's own son. 
He didn't spare his only son. And the ground of security was the love of God. In verse 8 of chapter 5, he says, God demonstrates his love toward us. And now while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So notice what God did. He did something in the past and what he is going to be doing for us right now. In the past, he delivered him up for us all. God the Father delivered Jesus for us all. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. Men of Israel, Peter speaking, this is a sermon. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and powers, signs that God did through him in the midst of your midst, as you yourselves also know, this Jesus, now notice, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, it says, you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, that's the second part of the gospel, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, by death. So it says, how shall he not? With him, God has exalted Jesus Christ, and we are then exalted with him, as we were talking about in uh, our uh, praise this morning. We are in Christ, and we, when Christ is raised from the dead, we're also raised with him. So this is the loving and sovereign act of God. He didn't just allow the cross. He used the effects of the cross to bless us. And so Paul argues from the greater to the lesser, he paid the highest price for us, and that's sending his son to die in our place and allowed us to then be able to be the beneficiaries. Look at what he's done doing now. In the past, he delivered him up for us all. Now he's going to graciously or freely give us all things. He has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Bible says the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. So the, God did the greater thing with the death of his son. And can he now keep us saved, keep us preserved? That's the lesser of those two. And so he's given us everything we need in our lives for life and for godliness. So look at verse 33, the second question. Who shall accuse us? No one, because God the Father will not accuse us. He's the one who's forgiven us. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring anything to the charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies the word charge is a legal term. It's a summons to court, and here the court of God is in heaven. And this is against God's elect, which shows that there's ownership and there's protection. We are God's chosen people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, it says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? You're bought with a price. You're bought with the precious blood of Christ. And so because we have been brought with the price and we are God's possession, therefore we are then to live our lives. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. So God has just spent eight chapters 
justifying us, declaring us righteous in his courtroom, and sanctifying us, making us holy, that everyday experiential experience that we go through as we spend time in his word and as we walk with him. So he is not going to condemn us. See, a judge cannot justify and condemn. That would be unjust. The Bible says it is God, the Father, who justifies. We are safe. We are safe because we are protected by God's omnipotent arms. Peter says, we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So who can accuse us? No one. Who can oppose us? No one. Who, can who shall condemn us? Look at verse 34. No one because the Son will not condemn us. He died for me. He loved me so much he died for me. Look at verse 34. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Notice three things. Number one, Christ died. It's the gospel message. Christ died, and he was willing to do that to proclaim procure our salvation. Remember in John chapter 15, it says, greater love has no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. So Jesus loved us so much, he gave his life. John 3.16, like we were singing about today, is another example of that. Not only did he die, but he was risen again. The father was so satisfied with that payment that he raised Jesus from the grave and has given all of that judgment to him. So he's now at the right hand of God, and he is praying for us in the realm of our salvation. The Holy Spirit, in verse 26 and 27, is praying for us in the realm of our experience. Jesus is praying for us in the realm of our salvation, and he is interceding for us. He's our defense attorney. Why do we need a defense attorney? Because if you read Revelation chapter 12, and I think you just went through a series in the book of Revelation here, if I'm not mistaken, because I watched it online myself. But it says Satan is continually accusing the brethren. And how do you overcome that? You overcome it by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7, this is what it says. Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him, seeing he always lives to make intercession for them. He does this constantly. So you cannot intercede for some, someone and condemn them at the same time. That would be unjust. And it's interesting to note that the Holy Spirit is not going to condemn us because he's been given to us the moment we believe. He comes into us. He's in us forever, according to John chapter 14, according to Ephesians chapter 1. He is the guarantee that we will receive that inheritance. And so the Holy Spirit will not condemn us either. Look at the next passage. Verse 35 through 39. Who or what will separate us? No one, because nothing can separate us. Paul talks about the love of Christ in verses 35 and 36. He talks about the love of God the Father in verses 37 through 39. And these verses cover all people and all circumstances. Paul is an incredible uh, prosecutor here at this point. And look at verse 35, looking at the love of Christ. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to list a number of things. Shall tribulation, that's trouble from outside sources, or distress, that's anguish from inside pressure, or persecution, that would be mistreatment and always in reference to the gospel, or famine where your body is divided, the, the, the very basics, or nakedness, the ultimate exposure, being defenseless, or danger, or peril, or uh, that means awful danger, and that's used eight times in 2 Corinthians chapter, eight, uh, chapter 11 of Paul's life experience. And the last one is sword, death by sword, being killed. And isn't that nice to know that in, in Job 13, 15, it says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Worst case scenario, God takes your life. Even in that, God says, I'm worth trusting. So verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. So Paul refers back to Psalm 44, verse 22, to show that Old Testament saints were continually facing death and suffering daily. And likewise, Jesus in John chapter 15 and 16 shows that the disciples were going to go through suffering because they hated the disciples because they first hated Jesus Christ. And I was looking up this past week about the Colosseum. Betty and I were there a couple of years ago with our daughter Kelly. And um, it's, it's a great big amphitheater, about 50,000 seats. And um, there, over 400 years, it's estimated that 400,000 people died. An average about 1,000 deaths per year. And these are people who are led like sheep to the slaughter. So now, in verse 37, it says, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So in all these things, what does that mean? The verse 35, Paul says, we're more than conquerors. We're super conquerors. He couldn't think of a better way to say it. This is, we are super conquerors through Jesus because of what he has done. And so both the Father and Jesus are showing love when Christ was on the cross. This brings glory to God. This brings blessing to other people. And this brings good to ourselves because we have now received that salvation that he has offered. He turns weakness to strength. He turns sweetness to bitterness. And he turns tragedy to triumph. And he, look what he says in verse 38. He says, I am sure, I am fully persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor uh, things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He takes every possible potential that could keep us from being separated from God. Anything in death or in the process of death, anything in while we're alive, he says angels, and he goes on to talk about principalities. He goes on to talk about the powers, which are evil spirits, different orders of the demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing now, nothing in the future, nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, or anything else in creation. That includes any other person, includes Satan. Satan can't 
take your salvation away. And you, because you are a created being, you can't take your salvation away. So neither God in verse 33, Christ in verse 34, the Holy Spirit in verse 26, circumstances, verses 35, 38, and 39, or any other being, verse 39, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that puts us on the top of Mount Everest. Now, very quickly, let me run through the application for this. Number one, God's, in verse thir- and I put this in a, almost like an outline for, for the passage. Number one, God's sovereignty declares he is for us, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Number two, if God has saved us, then he is going to supply us with everything that is needed for life and godliness, verse 32. Number three, God has dismissed all charges. Only my conscience gives me guilt. Verse 33, God saves and he sanctifies us through Christ's mediation. Found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 25. God's love is not diminished by difficulties of life, and we all go through those. God's love is not threatened by any type of adversity, verse 36. God's love is demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ, verse 37. And God's love will never be removed by any possible circumstance in the universe. The question is, are you safe in God's omnipotent arms? See, everybody needs to respond to the gospel. That's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reactions, number one, I do nothing. And in John chapter 3, verse 18, it says, He that believes on him is not condemned. He that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You can reject it. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's separation from God forever. Or you can receive that gracious gift of his son. As many as received him, Jesus, to them he gives the right, the power, the authority to be called a child of God. See, life is all about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And this church proclaims him faithfully week after week. And I am just so blessed to be able to be a part of this as I attend, as I bring my granddaughter to Pioneer Girls. What a great, great place you have here. So what's required? Believe the gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, I thank you again for this opportunity you give us to be able to open up your word. I thank you, Father, for the fact that you have done it all. In your word, in the book of Jonah, it says salvation is of the Lord. All that is required of us is to appropriate it, to to base our eternal destiny upon the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for loving us so much. 
and sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die for us so that we might live with you forever. So, Lord, we praise you for this worship hour. For I pray in the matchless name of your Son. Amen. Well, thank you, Pastor Rumbaugh, for bringing us that message of hope. I needed to hear that message today. We are accused from so many angles. The world loves to accuse believers. Oh, you're hypocrites. You don't live the way that you proclaim to live. And we would have to acknowledge that that's sometimes true. Satan loves to accuse believers. He's so angry about what God has done. He wants us not to believe that our salvation is secure. And our own conscience is often accusing us. But I thank Paul for that message this morning in Romans. I'm going to ask you to stand up, if you can stand up. And before we launch into the last song, I'm going to ask you those four questions that were up here on the screen. And if you will just respond with the word, no one. And you can respond as heartily as you believe this to be true. And I hope that by the end of today, we do believe it to be true. But who shall oppose us? No one. Who shall accuse us? No one. Who shall condemn us? No one. Who shall separate us from the love of God? No one. Because of what Christ Jesus has done. Amen.